Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're talking about guns and how regulation of them affects sales. There are more guns than people in the United States, 120 firearms for every 100 residents, according to a 2018 report by the Small Arms Survey out of Geneva, Switzerland. A Gallup poll last year showed slightly more than half of Americans say there should be more restrictions on gun sales. But what would that do to demand for guns? We're talking with Brad Shapiro, professor of marketing at the Booth School of Business. He studies empirical industrial organization and applied microeconomics with an expertise in the economics of advertising and measuring the effectiveness of that advertising. He's the co-author of a working paper titled Preferences for Firearms and Their Implications for Regulation. Brad Shapiro, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. What prompted you and your co-authors to ask this question about the effect of gun laws on gun ownership? Was was there a specific prompt for you? Yeah, I think, you know, if we thought about gun policy in the U.S. in the last couple of decades, I always felt like people were mostly talking past each other. And I really wanted to be able to provide some way to think about this problem coherently, such that, you know, we could talk to each other in a in a logical way. It just took me a long time to figure out, you know, what that angle was that allowed me to use the the tools and methods from economics and marketing. May I ask, do you own a gun? I do not own a gun. I've thought about it. So I, I grew up in Texas, so I'm, I'm very familiar with gun culture. I've shot guns. I, I was uh, in the Boy Scouts growing up. I shot guns plenty. You know, living in Chicago, my general feeling is there's too many people in too tight a space and, and the risk that I hit somebody I don't intend to hit is, is too high for me to be comfortable with having a gun personally. Interesting. You know, you know, Brad, I feel like every time we hear about possible new gun regulations, there is t- this tandem reporting on a rise in gun sales, right? So are you essentially putting numbers to that conventional wisdom here? Yeah. So I think we're putting numbers to sort of the context-free valuation of, of guns. So it's not specifically guns at the time of these these big incidents that we hear about or these possible regulations we hear about, but sort of if you imagine on any average day how much people would like to buy a gun, that's what we're thinking about. All right. Well, let's talk about the data that you collected for this study. Um, first, you conducted a survey of about 20,000 people, a poll of gun ownership and attitudes. And you were asking about their own gun purchases. What did you find? We found that a lot of people own guns. So something like 40% of, of households own at least one gun. And we found for the most part, people want to own guns for the purposes of, of home and, and self-protection. But there was some some differences across people in this. You know, A small percentage of people buy guns for the purposes of hunting or for sport shooting or for something like that. But the overwhelming majority were, were for home and self-protection. And the other thing we learned from this, this initial survey is, is people were primarily interested in, in buying handguns, though some people were interested in all sorts of different types of guns, um, depending on their purposes. Yeah, see, the handgun percentage was, was way bigger than, than long guns, right? Or so-called assault weapons? Yeah, so long guns in, include some so-called assault weapons, but they also include some guns that are very pedestrian types of guns. So the 
the classic gun that I was used to growing up was a, a pump shotgun, hmm. um, which is a long gun, but is in, in no sense is it an assault weapon. Yeah. Okay. So you did the survey um, of gun ownership and attitudes, and then you scraped data on gun prices. Uh, what did that tell you and how did you get that? So there's a, uh, a website that is basically an aggregator for, for, for gun dealers um, that we scraped data from. Um, so basically, we were essentially pulling price quotes for, for various models of guns one by one, but we had the computer do it for us. And so this told us a couple of things. One, it told us just the level of prices for each different type of gun. It also told us something about how much the prices of guns vary across the U.S. and across time. Um, the, I think the, the interesting finding there is that gun prices vary extremely little. So if you're buying a gun today um, in Florida, it's very likely exactly the same price that you would pay in, in Seattle. That really surprises me. We were surprised as well. Um, and, and from our perspective as economists, that was actually a little disappointing because usually when there's big differences in prices, we can use that to you know, study how much prices matter for, for decisions and things like that. All right. So you have the poll information and you have the information uh, from gun sales. So let's get to some of the policy implications here. You ran a data set on the possibility of an assault weapons ban. Um, And of course, just this past June, uh, the day after a mass shooting at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that killed five people a week after the Uvalde school massacre in Texas, President Biden did call on Congress to either pass an assault weapons ban or to raise the age to purchase them from 18 to 21. So let's talk about what a ban would do to demand. What happened to consumer behavior in your data when you removed semi-automatic rifles and shotguns from their list of choices of things that they could buy? Yeah, so this is this is a, a, an interesting point that economists often make about regulation, that if, if you restrict people's choices, they don't necessarily switch to doing what you want them to do. Uh, so in this case, what we see is when we take away the ability to buy semi-automatic rifles and semi-automatic shotguns, by and large, the consumers who were previously buying those guns switch instead to buying handguns. They don't switch to no guns, they switch to handguns. So overall, something like a, a semi-automatic weapons ban, uh, we would expect to have a minimal overall effect on total guns in circulation um, and a big increase in the number of handguns in circulation. So it, it seems like basically the lesson there is that they're going to find a gun no matter what. Yeah, I think part of the lesson is that, and part of the lesson is that the people who were previously buying the, the assault weapons, as it were, are, are the sort of gun enthusiasts. They're not the people who are just like barely willing to buy a gun. Hmm. They're people who are who have, I don't know what their needs are, but have some real or perceived need to have a gun. And if you just take away part of the gun market, they'll find another part of the gun market that suits their needs. Okay. So you also looked at a couple of alternatives to an assault weapons ban, uh, which one of which would be to increase the sales tax on gun purchases. You went with a hypothetical uh, 10% tax. I thought this was really interesting. One of the areas that you focused on was first-time gun owners, and you found that they're generally more sensitive to price, right? So how might a higher tax play out in some sort of regulatory policy? So the first and overarching impact uh, of a tax that we found is it had had quite small effect. So it turns out overall, gun buyers are relatively price inelastic, which means they don't respond that much to, to big price changes. But you're right. First-time gun buyers were much more sensitive to price. 
Um, and in particular, first-time gun buyers are also much more likely to be handgun buyers. So if we think about the tax lever instead of a, a ban lever, we would think that a tax lever would disproportionately affect first-time buyers and disproportionately affect people who are buying handguns. So then the follow-on to that is that if first-time gun owners are sensitive to price and you raise the price, maybe they don't become gun owners? Exactly right. So either they don't become gun owners or they just don't become gun owners right now. Maybe they wait until later and maybe their values change over time, but exactly that. Okay. And you also considered something that I don't think has been part of the national conversation, at least in my memory, which is a ban on all handguns, which are the primary market for gun buyers, as you noted. Um, Most people don't buy assault weapons. So talk us through what happens to demand when you model that, what would be a massive policy change. Yeah, so we, we modeled this not because we think it's an entirely realistic policy change, but to give a conceptual idea about how people think about trading off gun types. So it turns out that we're using this information about the types of guns people consider, and lots and lots of people consider only handguns. So what that means is if you take away the option of buying a handgun from somebody who's only considering a handgun, their only logical alternative is to buy no gun. So if you were to ban the handguns, you'd see a a huge reduction in the total number of guns out there, which is different, of course, from the assault weapons ban because the assault weapons Uh, buyers often consider all the different types of guns, not just assault weapons. So then uh, talk us through the main differences, consumer behavior-wise, between an assault weapons ban and a handgun ban. Um, What will potentially reduce gun sales more, or alternatively, creates more demand? Definitely a handgun ban would reduce overall demand for guns the most. And this is exactly because most handgun owners aren't willing to, to spring the much larger price of an assault weapon. And most handgun buyers also just want a handgun to carry around with them. So it doesn't make sense for them to carry around an assault weapon with them. On the other hand, if we think about an assault weapons ban, these are mostly gun enthusiasts who have a lot of guns. And, you know, they've got all sorts of reasons why they want to have a lot of guns, whether it is, you know, some sport shooting in their backyard or if it's just collecting. But these people consider all different types of guns. And so if you restrict their choices, they'll, they'll switch to a different type of gun. Then walk me through the policy implications here of this overall study. If you were designing a way to somehow cut down on the extraordinary gun violence in this country, um, the most visible of which, of course, are mass shootings, but we also know that most gun deaths are from suicide, what are the main factors that you would point to? So I'll give you a slightly disappointing answer to start, which is we're very careful not to make any specific policy recommendations in the paper. We view our goal here as a predictive one. So we're trying to help policymakers understand what the likely consequences of their policy decisions are. And it's up to them and the voters to decide what their values are. So whether it's the goal is to reduce mass shootings or if the goal is to reduce total gun violence, that's up to the political process to decide. With that said, if your goal was to reduce total gun deaths, about 54% of gun deaths are suicides, about 43% are homicides, Over 60% of the homicides are domestic violence. Over 90% of all of these are are done with handguns. So I I think if your goal is to reduce total gun violence and total gun death, um, and you want to think about dealing with that through regulation of the firearm market, you'd want to find a way to reduce the total number of handguns out there. Uh, And you note in the study that, uh, that there were some difficulties in doing a study like this because there just aren't a lot of sources for, for data, right? Why is that? 
So a big piece of why there's there's not so much data is, is policy related. So there are laws that prevent centralized federal um, collection of, of data on, on gun prices and quantities. There's very little, and it's, it's sort of aggregate data that you can mostly find. So there's a federal background uh, check database. And so that basically tells you by month how many total background checks were conducted in a particular state and whether those were for long guns or for handguns, but nothing more detailed than that. So then with all those kind of, I guess, restrictions or, or lack of data um, because of policy, can you talk us through how you designed the study so that you could get around that or add to it? Yeah, I'm happy to happy to talk about this because I think it's actually really cool. So we took an, an old tool from, from marketing called stated choice-based conjoint analysis. I know that's a really uh, <laughs> that's jargony, a, <laughs> a really jargony term, but this is a, it's actually a really simple idea that came about in the 60s in marketing. And, and what people in, in marketing in the 60s said is we want to estimate the, the likely chances of our product's success and what people like in products before the products even exist. And so naturally in those cases, there's no data because the product doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. So what the marketers decided to do is they said, well, we can't just ask people what they like because people don't tell the truth. But what we're going to do is we're, we're going to have people choose between two different options. And these two different options might vary on just a couple of different dimensions. And then they'll choose between these two options. So in our case, we'll say, do you want a, a, a Smith & Wesson uh, handgun that's priced at $500? Or do you want you know, a, a Winchester uh, rifle um, priced at $700. And then the consumer will make a choice. And then you have them make a whole bunch more choices, but you vary these attributes. And eventually what you can do is you can trace out how much additional discount you'd have to get them to get them to take a, a, a compromise on, on some attribute that they really like. And you can eventually translate these into willingness to pay for these different attributes of the product. And so this is exactly what we're going to do for guns. Now, the difficulty with this is you're still a little bit worried that maybe people aren't fully telling the truth or they just fully can't conceptualize the trade-offs that they're making. So what we're going to do is we're going to take those pieces of of very aggregate data that are available in real-world data, like the total number of background checks, and we're going to use that to sort of validate our estimates from this, this survey method. So if it turns out that our survey method predicts that there would be 40 million guns sold, and in reality, there's only 35 million guns sold, we can sort of adjust our estimates to make sure that those aggregates match up. But what did you find in the end? In the end, we found that our survey method matched the, the observed data almost perfectly. Almost perfectly? Almost perfectly. It was actually quite surprising to me. I think it's also really cool that we took this method that's, that's kind of an ancient method, and, and we've, we've inserted it into a, what we think is an important policy problem. Um, and it's, it's, you know, from basic startup marketing, it's not from general policy analysis and economists haven't really been doing this. So this is, this is definitely a, a marketing tool. What do you want to take out of this and kind of pull some strings on to do next? What's, what's still missing in the research? Yeah. So we don't have any direct connection with our research here to actual gun deaths. We're just measuring what we're expecting in terms of total number of guns and types of guns in circulation. It would be nice if we could could learn something more about which guns, which specific guns are, are most likely to cause deaths and to think about more policy options that might be uh, more directed and less, uh, less of a bludgeon, as it were. Lots of marketing and economics tools could be used to think about this. There's a lot more 
um, happening at the cutting edge of prediction. Um, and I'm hoping to, to take some of these tools and, and learn something about that. But we're, we're very much in the early stages there. All right. Brett Shapiro, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tess. What are the ways that capitalism can go wrong and what can we do to fix it? Listen to the Capital Isn't podcast with Chicago Booth economist Luigi Zingales and business journalist Bethany McLean. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on YouTube or on CapitalIsn't.com. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.